The U.S. government has already levied tariffs on $250 billion of Chinese imports, mostly industrial and agricultural products. Now there are plans to put 25% tariffs on another $300 billion of goods that cover just about every category imaginable. China is reportedly retaliating with tariffs on $60 billion of products imported from the U.S. AP reports that Walmart has warned investors that its retail prices will have to go up to cover at least a portion of those tariffs. Macy's appears to be hinting the same. So, how do supply managers respond? Welcome to Global Sourcing Insights from SIPS. I'm Bob Rosbach, and I've put that question to Bill Michaels, SIPS Vice President of Operations, Americas. Well, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. There are a couple of things that you have to think about. For, for some time, I've been telling people to start thinking about architecting their supply chain. So when they actually pick the first supplier, they're really architecting the whole chain. Uh, and if you architect chain like some companies in the electronics industry, um, you'll, you'll, you'll get stuck into a, a, an origin you may not be able to get out of. I've also, also been on uh, risk management, constantly looking at what are the risks? How are they going to impact our companies? What, what, how should we change or how should we account for some risks? And I've also been dealing, deal, detailing that when you're working with a low-cost country, you know, you're only going to be working in a low-cost country temporarily until they're no longer low-cost again and you have to find an alternate. So I think you know, what has to happen is you have to have all those things working in concert for your supply chain to be good. So would you agree that we seem to be into a long-term condition regarding Chinese trade relations? I mean, President Trump uh, is saying he, quote, loves tariffs, unquote, because of the revenue. Um, It sounds like tariffs are here for a while and the benefits of sourcing from China are dwindling. So is this a long-term thing or do we think this is a negotiating tactic uh, and eventually the tariffs will go away? Well, you know, uh, the way the way I look at it is whether it's short term or long term, it will impact many of the supply chains forever. Uh, it's kind of interesting because um, you know I, I have uh, my wife bought me a grill for uh, an RV I have, and normally that would come from China, but this in this case it came from Malaysia. So people are already moving their uh, their supply chains out. Uh, Black and Decker just announced a Craftsman Tools. Uh, will be moving back to the United States. Walmart announced that it will resource $250 billion worth of goods by 2023. Ford just recently resourced 3,200 jobs to Avon Lake in Ohio. And GE's looking at its light bulbs and water heaters and, and the reshoring has started. So once, once you make a, a strategic move to move your products out of a country, it's not likely you're going to go back. And from a, from a standpoint of um, a low-cost country, one of the things that sourcing managers need to look at is really, you know, best landed cost. That's the kind of thing that they have to look at. Or uh, when they're looking at best landed cost, they may not be looking at price or, 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 or uh, they may be looking in terms of more value. And the other thing I'd say is as companies bring these products back, they do a degree of automation, and that degree of automation um, offsets low-cost country labor. I think, uh, didn't the, um, the CEO of Stanley mention that? I, he said uh, they were going to put a, really a high level of automation in their plant in uh, Texas. They're putting $90 million bucks into that uh, 
And he said uh, they are, they're going to make, quote, sweeping changes to uh, their supply chain. Yeah, it, and I think that's when we start thinking about what's happening in the, in the reshoring efforts and we start thinking about tariffs, we start thinking that um, um, automation, the robots don't get tired. They work 24 hours a day. They don't go off on sick leave. So, you know, it, it, if you're ever going to reshore back to the United States or change your supply chain significantly, automation is going to be a big factor. So, I mean, I think, I think that, that that's true. And for any company thinking that it's temporary, there are things they can do. So you mentioned landed costs. So explain what you mean by that. We well, have to look at, uh, at all the origins of, of, of where things are coming from, what's happening in terms of the duties and the tariffs. And you have to do a financial analysis on at, at the end of the day when it gets in your pro- product and your, it gets in your product cost, you know, what's the best co- landed cost? And, you know, the tariffs are going to certainly skew that model um, again, away from sourcing and, and China. Yep, yep. It sounds like other countries are really trying to respond. I know Taiwan has taken some very active steps to try to recruit uh, technology companies. Um, you said your grill now comes from Malaysia, is that yes, right? That's true. And Egypt's another one. So people are, are, uh, are starting to look off where, where else can they go. So you know, beside the reshoring effort, there's some um, effort to streamline those supply chains and make those supply chains uh, uh, cost effective again. Sure. But once you make that change, to, to answer your question, uh, it's very hard to go back. You're not going to go back and, and redo your, your supply chain. Now, some companies, if you look at the electronics industry or the cell phone industry, they've built the entire industry based on an Asia-based supply chain, much more difficult with the technology, the people, the expertise to move that entire supply chain. Sure. It's, <clears throat> it's a lot different if you're talking about a couple of plastic parts or some wire harnesses for the automotive industry or something like that. You're talking about the electronics industry is very, very heavily invested. Sure. So uh, from a CPO standpoint, um, you, you would argue going way back to the beginning here of our conversation that uh, procurement officers really need to have an overall strategy for dealing with this kind of or any kind of external change or any kind of disruption to the market. It could be new costs, currency uh, things, political unrest natural disasters, new market conditions, uh, other kinds of uh, disruptors like uh, competitors, uh, who knows, right? And so what is the organized way to approach uh, that strategy creation? The the interesting thing, um, I saw a company that did it um, absolutely uh, perfectly, and this company was a biotech company, and the total spend for the company was $250 but the uh, profit was $7 And what they wanted was a complete review of the supply chain. They wanted, firstly, to look at any supplier um, that was a, a sole source supplier with no one else to go, uh, one line. Uh, so focus on the sole source first, and then sur- focus on the single sources, and then start looking at all the uh, products on risk. And so they had a complete analysis of the supply chain. They looked at how long would it take to replace the supplier, what would it take, um, what, what would be the time differential? And it was a cross-functional, cross-business uh, program. And at the end of the day, um, they, they came up with a comprehensive program to uh, look at every item that they buy and be sure that they had a risk alternative for everything. And it was pretty hard in biotech because when they start off, everything's speed to market. So um, typically, you don't approve alternate suppliers or you don't keep inventory. But the profits on this company were so high, there was three options. One was to 
it was regulated too. One was to keep inventory. The other was to approve a sub alternate supplier, but not go through regulatory. And the third was to go through regulatory. So on every every item, every critical item, every every product in the whole product line and in the R&D base, they did a complete review of the supply chain, looked at where they should be getting it, whether they should be making it, what it would take if something went wrong, and they had an alternative for everything. Wow, that's that's a comprehensive strategy. Can uh, can all industries, every company, really afford? And is it worthwhile to do that kind of thorough analysis? What are there? Is there a middle step for some folks? We, you know, I, I would say it's kind of interesting because when I go out and I talk to groups and I, I, I'll ask the question, how many people have a risk strategy? And everybody will undoubtedly raise their hand, which they should. And then when I ask the second question, which is how many of your risk strategies go beyond tier one in the supply chain, I, I, I don't get any hands. And the, the, the thing about that is, you know, there's, there's not only the, the risks that we talk about, uh, of natural disasters and some, some things like that. But the, one of the key risks that you look at is uh, with corporate social responsibility, many companies are saying they audit the supply chain, they go out, they educate the suppliers, but many of them don't have a map of the entire supply chain. They really don't know after tier one or maybe tier two, really what the source is of their products or whatever they're buying. Absolutely. And we were talking about the supply chain uh, and the electronics industry. And I was working with one, one chip maker and they went down three levels in the supply chain only to find that there was one source of supply for the entire industry on a component. Yes. Uh, I remember when there was a disaster, wasn't it in Japan, where we found out that the pigment in all the paint of all the cars of, of every manufacturer in the world, I think, came from one plant in Japan. And that was quite a shock, I think, to a lot of supply managers in the auto industry. Yeah, I remember in that one, Ford stopped painting black trucks. So, you know, it was a, it was, it was a problem. So I think, I think you know, to, to your point, you, you really have to have a good, good idea who's in the supply chain, where's the origin of stuff, and then, and then uh, are you comfortable with that supply chain, and are you going out and auditing and doing the things you need to do uh, to look at things like modern slavery, to educate the suppliers on, on your policies and procedures, and can you make sure that, uh, that you have uh, your, your supply chain's intact and they're not subcontracting out to someone else because that's happened sure. a couple of times. So not, not only on the you know, low-cost country and, and China tariff thing, but you know that there's more risk, I think, now that you have the tariffs that they'll be moving stuff off and back. So you have sort of a, like a five-point uh, strategy or five elements in creating a, an overall procurement strategy. Uh, operational efficiency, product and process, supplier relationship, people. Uh, can you walk us through those four areas kind of quickly? What are you looking for when you say operational efficiency? Well, I, th I think when I say operational efficiency, when we're looking at our supply chain, we don't want to go through um, links that are not relevant, uh, that cost too much money, that take too much time, and then introduce risk. So I think really streamlining that supply chain and managing all the links in that supply chain um, will help. I think over time, uh, we're going to have integrated competing supply chains, and you know, they're going to be integrated on systems level. The IoT will manage uh, uh, the inventory, and, and 
um, the, the payments and everything will all be direct in a, in a integrated supply chain. So I think it, it's a good time now to start thinking about how, how to drive operational efficiency in there. Some of that is taking some uh, transactions and making them and automating them. That's true. And others would be if you if you have a distributor that's adding no value and maybe just passing an order along from a manufacturer, you need you need to streamline and, and really take out the links of the supply chain that are not, not efficient. Maybe even combine some operations and get some of your suppliers to work in a broader broader context. Sure. You know, some you have to look at the business the business need and speed to market may be a business need, it may be quality, it may be um, it may be innovation. But, you know, you need to streamline that supply chain so that you can get those extra value pieces as we move toward value and not necessarily price. And that brings, really brings us to the second point of seeking the best overall value, uh, incorporating the cost of something and also the functionality of it. I, I think that that's key. You know, I've done a couple of talks on the, the life cycle of the CPO and found that, you know, it's probably around four, four to five years. And if they're solely focused on cost reduction, um, then, then they won't survive because you got you can only do that for so long. Maybe when a new C, CPO comes in uh, for the first year or two, the suppliers respond positively. But after that, if you don't have a way to introduce value or or innovation or change or automation, then then you know you run out of tricks and you lose your job and start all over again. So, so I think companies and and senior management are going to focus more on value. Basically, a new CPO, you can only beat up your suppliers for so many years before they wear out and you got to have something new. That's right. And, and especially if you have strategic suppliers, you're not acting strategically. And if you think about architecting the supply chain long term, uh, supplier relationship is the thing that's going to drive, uh, drive the innovation, drive the supplier. So as the transactions go away and as the uh, tactical procurement goes away, we really, really will spend our time strategically working with suppliers to add value to the entire chain. But it takes, you have to train, you have to have trained people and a culture in your procurement uh, division really to, to get all this done. And as you say, you also need some cross-functional support. Uh, you can't do a full analysis of your supply chain without bringing in your engineers or uh, your customer service people or financial people. I mean, it's it's a uh, that takes a broad cross section of your company, and people who are willing to work together and can. That's that's true. And you know, you have the R and D side. You have to know what products in R and D and how they're going to be affected. And you have to have a commitment to look at look at things. And and when we looked at that risk management process, we did a um, sort of an analysis that each component of the business had uh, had the score score the risk and uh, on that risk there was also a uh, weighting of how important was it so you would score the business risk the regulatory risk the quality risk uh, and, and then we come up with a composite score and we worked with an actuary who helped us understand uh, how bad was the risk so you know is it a major risk or a minor risk and we looked at all the supply chain risks as well as all of the you know fire wood building um, all of the physical risks, where they sat in, in a floodplain, and, and um, all those things went into doing this analysis to picking which suppliers um, were the most risky. And there was a company backing. When, when the risk plan went to the board, it was, it was approved right away, and it was about a $100 million risk reduction plan. Wow. 
but you got to have that kind of commitment to be able to do it. And with people that are uh, still running tactically and transactionally, um, they don't have the time to do it. They don't have the time to really architect that's changed the way that you'd like it. You know, there's temporary measures. Getting back to the whole tariff thing, there's temporary methods that people can use. Um, you know, one of the things that people can use is um, con content, local content for assembly. So bring in components, only have the tariffs on uh, opponents and take out some of the bigger cost components and, and build things in the local, local uh, content. Um, you know, what I've done before also is really understand the tariffs and really understand the codes and then work within those codes. I was working with a food manufacturer once and uh, sugar is government controlled pricing. And, and um, we uh, we built a strategy that said we were going to build a it was going to be a, a pudding plan. So we took our chocolate and everything off to Canada, which had world world sugar pricing. Went back to customs and had it reclassified a pudding blend. And uh, the pudding the uh, uh, sugar came in under the world price went uh, in the quota. So it's this kinds of things you can do to kind of help it. Uh, and then the other thing you know really is well, wait a minute, uh, just hold, go back. So basically, you disaggregated the what you were importing to to create another put it into another category well, yeah what we did is we changed it uh in terms of normally you bring in all the components and then we'd uh, you know we'd pay the the, the the world price was significantly lower than the u.s government support price uh on sugar so what we did and there's a quota where you can bring in so much uh, so much um, um foreign sugar uh so what we did is we actually had uh, the pudding blend mixed in Canada, and then we went to customs and had a harmonized code created for a pudding blend, which allowed the sugar to come in under the quota. Okay, so it was the it was the opposite it was the opposite of way. Um, you actually the strategy was to do some combination before it was imported, and that got you around the tariff. Well, wow. it, it got it got you into yeah. a lower cost of sugar. So, I right, mean, all all these kinds of things you look at, like on the steel right now. I think there's some countries like Korea is not not impacted by the steel uh, the steel tariff. So you have to look at that stuff too. So you have to really dig into I mean, what, what component are you bringing in? You know, what, what is it? How is it coded in customs? How does that tariff apply to it? Uh, and, and, then, and then see if there's any way, you could, maybe you change, you substitute different products for that, or maybe you, uh, um, um, you build a different product that, that you can work with um, and, and work, around, work with the customs to help you with the tariff. Wow. I've done so, that before. So, I mean, the, the tariffs are not new. I mean, I started my career. That's how it went. So you have to look at every, every option you can, which is from moving it back to the United States to looking at some of the shorter-term options if you want to stay in, the, in that supply chain. So you can go to, like I said, local content. You can work on customs and the customs codes. What, what every, every smart, astute buyer should do is understand um, understand who's under the tariff, which, which countries are, which countries aren't. The other thing they should do is they should really look at those harmonized customs codes to see what their competitors are doing. So um, when I was importing a, a lot of equipment, I, I, I imported in, in two businesses. One was a manufacturing, one was a food business. And we were, we were looking at the customs codes all the time to see which was the port of entry, who was bringing in what. Uh, so um, th those areas, you have, to, you have to really understand. Sure, sure, and watch your competitors. Yeah, because so, uh, well, one one other example is you know I, I had a, a, a 
a point or part where I was really working in the RV industry and they were bringing in some China uh, um, facilities, uh, toilets and things, sinks, and, and they, were, they were getting them from Malaysia, but when we looked at what their competitors doing, they were getting them from Canada. So took a good look at where, which origin, how do we get to the different origins and, and uh, understand what's going on. Sure. And uh, buying sourcing from Canada um, brings the transportation and the logistics uh, a lot closer to home. I would imagine there's probably some risk mitigation in that. Sure. And uh, damage, too. There's a lot of damage. So uh, now let's think of a specific, say, Walmart and its sourcing of sort of brooms and dustpans. You know, for something like that, that it's on in the household items, it's easy to find a new supplier. But then what if you move up to something more complicated like vacuum cleaners, uh, then it becomes complicated. There are brand names that Walmart might want or, or, or any big retailer or specific features that, um, you know, a big retail outfit might want uh, that are covered by patents or trade secrets. So what sort of risk mitigation is possible when the product you are buying has unique features? How do you get around that? Well, what I think you have to do you know, with the, broom, the brooms and dust mops and things like that, I think a lot of that's going to be automated. So it's going to make it a little bit easier to, to, to build those. On the components that have um, motors and engines and gears and pads, I think it's, it's, uh, you have to plan your way out of, the, uh, out of one origin and into another. So you're either going to bring all the tooling back or you're going to send all the tooling to Thailand or you're going to send the tooling somewhere else. Uh, and you're gonna you're gonna have to do a startup factory, or um, get your supplier to do that, or uh, or 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 automate it, automate the uh, some of the product products again. So sure. I think you have to think about it. But it w- wouldn't be surprising if many companies pick up that they, they build enough inventory to carry the um, startup of a new location, and they start up a new location, or they start up a new location, uh, make the investment in capital, and then one day turn off one and start up the other still what that does is that still gives them a footprint in the uh, China China industry uh, but it also uh, for the China market but it also gives you a an opportunity elsewhere to move move more flexibly so all this uh, proves that uh, the world changes every day and you have to be uh, nimble and flexible if you're a procurement um officer, CPO, or, or a senior buyer, or somebody um, involved in global purchasing. So uh, anything else you need to add here before we wrap it up, Bill? Just, just one thing. And one of the things you need to do is be sure you're both collaborative internally and externally. Internally, you're going to have to get the support of all your, all your colleagues in the, uh, in the C-suite, and you're going to have to have a convincing financial argument to be able to make these changes. Um, so I think people have been sitting back on the China trade thing saying, you know, uh, it, if we wait long enough, it's going to go away. But now we're starting to see some companies saying, well, whether it goes away or not, there's different alternatives that we want to we invest in. All right. Well, we'll keep monitoring it closely. Thank you very much, Bill. Okay, Bob. Thank you. Thank you.